Chapter 8 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Chateau d'If. The commissary of police, as he traversed the antechamber, made a sign to two gendarmes who placed themselves one on Dante's right and the other on his left. A door that communicated with the Palais de Justice was opened and they went through a long range of gloomy corridors, whose appearance might have made even the boldest shudder. The Palais de Justice communicated with the prison, a sombre edifice that from its grated windows looks on the clock tower of the Acoule. After numberless windings, Dante saw a door with an iron wicket. The commissary took up an iron mallet and knocked thrice. Every blow seemed to Dante as if struck on his heart, the door opened, the two gendarmes gently pushed him forward, and the door closed with a loud sound behind him. The air he inhaled was no longer pure, but thick and mephitic. He was in prison. He was conducted to a tolerably neat chamber, but grated and barred, and its appearance, therefore, did not greatly alarm him. Besides, the words of Villefort, who seemed to interest himself so much, resounded still in his ears like a promise of freedom. It was four o'clock when Dante was placed in this chamber. It was, as we have said, the first of March, and the prisoner was soon buried in darkness. The obscurity augmented the acuteness of his hearing. At the slightest sound he rose and hastened to the door, convinced they were about to liberate him, but the sound died away, and Dante sank again into his seat. At last, about ten o'clock, and just as Dante began to despair, steps were heard in the corridor. A key turned in the lock. The bolts creaked, the massy oaken door flew open, and a flood of light from two torches pervaded the apartment. By the torchlight, Dante saw the glittering sabres and carbines of four gendarmes. He had advanced at first, but stopped at the sight of this display of force. "'Are you come here to fetch me?' asked he. "'Yes,' replied the gendarme. "'By the orders of the deputy procureur?' "'I believe so.' The conviction that they came from Monsieur de Villefort relieved all Dante's apprehensions. He advanced calmly and placed himself in the centre of the escort. A carriage waited at the door. The coachman was on the box and the police officer sat beside him. "'Is this carriage for me?' said Dante. "'It is for you,' replied a gendarme. Dante was about to speak, but feeling himself urged forward, and having neither the power nor the intention to resist, he mounted the steps, and was in an instant seated inside between two gendarmes. The two others took their places opposite, and the carriage rolled heavily over the stones. The prisoner glanced at the windows. They were grated, he had changed his prison for another that was conveying him he knew not whither. Through the grating, however, Dante saw they were passing through the Rue Casserie and by the Rue Saint-Laurent and the Rue Taramie to the port. Soon he saw the lights of La Consigne. The carriage stopped. The officer descended, approached the guardhouse. A dozen soldiers came out and formed themselves in order. Dante saw the reflection of their muskets by the light of the lamps on the quay. Can all this force be summoned on my account? thought he. The officer opened the door, which was locked, and without speaking a word, 
answered Dante's question, for he saw between the ranks of the soldiers a passage formed from the carriage to the port. The two gendarmes who were opposite to him descended first. Then he was ordered to alight, and the gendarme on each side of him followed his example. They advanced towards a boat, which a custom-house officer held by a chain near the quay. <coughs> the soldiers looked at Dante with an air of stupid curiosity. In an instant, he was placed in the stern-sheets of the boat, between the gendarmes, while the officer stationed himself at the bow. A shove sent the boat adrift, and four sturdy oarsmen impelled it rapidly towards the pilon. At a shout from the boat, the chain that closes the mouth of the port was lowered, and in a second they were, as Dante knew, in the Frioul and outside the inner harbour. The prisoner's first feeling was of joy at again breathing the pure air, for air is freedom. But he soon sighed, for he passed before La Reserve, where he had that morning been so happy, and now, through the open windows, came the laughter and revelry of a ball. Dante folded his hands, raised his eyes to heaven, and prayed fervently. The boat continued her voyage. They had passed the Tête de Morte, were now off the Anse du Faro, and about to double the battery. This manoeuvre was incomprehensible to Dante. "'Whither are you taking me?' asked he. "'You will soon know. "'But still, we are forbidden to give you an explanation.' Dante, trained in discipline, knew that nothing would be more absurd than to question subordinates, who were forbidden to reply, and so he remained silent. The most vague and wild thoughts passed through his mind. The boat they were in could not make a long voyage. There was no vessel at anchor outside the harbour. He thought perhaps they were going to leave him on some distant point. He was not bound, nor had they made any attempt to handcuff him. This seemed a good augury. Besides, had not the deputy, who had been so kind to him, told him that provided he did not pronounce the dreaded name of Noirtier, he had nothing to apprehend? Had not Villefort, in his presence, destroyed the fatal letter, the only proof against him? He waited silently, striving to pierce through the darkness. They had left the Ile Ratonneau, where the lighthouse stood on the right, and were now opposite the Point des Catalans. It seemed to the prisoner that he could distinguish a feminine form on the beach, for it was there Mercedes dwelt. How was it that a presentiment did not warn Mercedes that her lover was within three hundred yards of her? One light alone was visible, and Dante saw that it came from Mercedes's chamber. Mercedes was the only one awake in the whole settlement. A loud cry could be heard by her. But pride restrained him, and he did not utter it. What would his guards think if they heard him shout like a madman? He remained silent, his eyes fixed upon the light. The boat went on, but the prisoner thought only of Mercedes. An intervening elevation of land hid the light. Dante turned, and perceived that they had got out to sea. While he had been absorbed in thought, they had shipped their oars and hoisted sail. The boat was now moving with the wind. In spite of his repugnance to address the guards, Dante turned to the nearest gendarme, and taking his hand, Comrade, said he, I adjure you, as a Christian and a soldier, to tell me where we are going. 
I am Captain Dante, a loyal Frenchman, thought accused of treason. Tell me where you are conducting me, and I promise, on, you, on my honour, I will submit to my fate. The gendarme looked irresolutely at his companion, who returned for answer a sign that said, I see no great harm in telling him now. And the gendarme replied, You are a native of Marseille and a sailor, and yet you do not know where you are going? On my honour, I have no idea. Have you no idea whatever? None at all. That is impossible. I swear to you, it is true. Tell me, I entreat. But my orders. Your orders do not forbid your telling me what I must know in ten minutes, in half an hour or an hour. You see, I cannot escape, even if I intended. Unless you are blind, or have never been outside the harbour, you must know. I do not. Look round you, then. Dante rose and looked forward, when he saw rise within a hundred yards of him the black and frowning rock on which stands the Chateau d'If. This gloomy fortress, which has for more than three hundred years furnished food for so many wild legends, seemed to Dante like a scaffold to a malefactor. The Chateau d'If? cried he. What are we going there for? The gendarme smiled. I'm not going there to be imprisoned, said Dante. It is only used for political prisoners. I have committed no crime. Are there any magistrates or judges at the Chateau d'If? There are only, said the gendarme, a governor, a garrison, turnkeys, and good thick walls. Come, come, do not look so astonished, or you will make me think you are laughing at me in return for my good nature. Dante pressed the gendarme's hand as though he would crush it. You think then, said he, that I am taken to the Chateau d'If to be imprisoned there? It is probable, but there is no occasion to squeeze so hard. Without any inquiry? Without any formality? All the formalities have been gone through. The inquiry is already made. And so, in spite of Monsieur de Villefort's promises? I do not know what Monsieur de Villefort promised you, said the gendarme, but I know we are taking you to the Chateau d'If. But what are you doing? Help, comrade, help! By a rapid movement, which the gendarme's practised eye had perceived, Dante sprang forward to precipitate himself into the sea, but four vigorous arms seized him as his feet quitted the bottom of the boat. He fell back, cursing with rage. Good! said the gendarme, placing his knee on his chest. Believe, soft-spoken gentleman, again. Aki, my friend, I have disobeyed my first order, but I will not disobey the second, and if you move, I will blow your brains out. And he levelled his carbine at Dante, who felt the muzzle against his temple. For a moment, the idea of struggling crossed his mind, and of so ending the unexpected evil that had overtaken him. But he bethought of Monsieur de Villefort's promise, and, besides, death in a boat from the hand of a gendarme seemed too terrible. He remained motionless, but gnashing his teeth and wringing his hands with fury. At this moment the boat came to a landing with a violent shock. One of the sailors leapt on shore, a cord creaked as it ran through a pulley, and Dante guessed they were at the end of the voyage, and that they were mooring the boat. His guards, taking him by the arms and coat-collar, 
forced him to rise and dragged him towards the steps that led to the gate of the fortress, while the police officer, carrying a musket with fixed bayonet, followed behind. Dante made no resistance. He was like a man in a dream. He saw soldiers drawn up on the embankment. He knew vaguely that he was ascending a flight of steps. He was conscious that he passed through a door and that the door closed behind him, but all this indistinctly as through a mist. He did not even see the ocean, that terrible barrier against freedom, which the prisoners look upon with utter despair. They halted for a minute, during which he strove to collect his thoughts. He looked around. He was in a court surrounded by high walls. He heard the measured tread of sentinels, and as they passed before the light, he saw the barrels of their musket shine. They waited upwards of ten minutes, certain Dante could not escape. The gendarme released him. They seemed awaiting orders. The orders came. Where is the prisoner? said a voice. Here, replied the gendarme. Let him follow me. I will take him to his cell. Go, said the gendarme, thrusting Dante forward. The prisoner followed his guide, who led him into a room almost underground, whose bare and reeking walls seemed as though impregnated with tears. A lamp, placed on a stool, illumined the apartment faintly, and showed Dante the features of his conductor, an under-jailer, ill-clothed and of sullen appearance. "'Here is your chamber for to-night,' said he. "'It is late, and the governor is asleep. "'Tomorrow, perhaps, he may change you. "'In the meantime, there is bread, water, and fresh straw, "'and that is all a prisoner can wish for. "'Good night.' "'And before Dante could open his mouth, "'before he had noticed where the jailer placed his bread or the water, "'before he had glanced towards the corner where the straw was, "'the jailer disappeared, taking with him the lamp and closing the door, leaving stamped upon the prisoner's mind the dim reflection of the dripping walls of his dungeon. Dante was alone in darkness and in silence, cold as the shadows that he felt breathe on his burning forehead. With the first dawn of day, the jailer returned, with orders to leave Dante where he was. He found the prisoner in the same position, as if fixed there, his eyes swollen with weeping. He had passed the night standing and without sleep. The jailer advanced. Dante appeared not to perceive him. He touched him on the shoulder. Edmond started. Have you not slept? said the jailer. I do not know, replied Dante. The jailer stared. Are you hungry? continued he. I do not know. Do you wish for anything? I wish to see the governor. The jailer shrugged his shoulders and left the chamber. Dante followed him with his eyes and stretched forth his hands towards the open door. But the door closed. All his emotion then burst forth. He cast himself on the ground, weeping bitterly and asking himself what crime he had committed that he was thus punished. The day passed thus. He scarcely tasted food but walked around and round the cell like a wild beast in its cage. One thought in particular tormented him, namely that during his journey hither he had sat so still, whereas he might, 
a dozen times have plunged into the sea, and, thanks to his powers of swimming, for which he was famous, have gained the shore, concealed himself until the arrival of a Genoese or Spanish vessel, escaped to Spain or Italy, where Mercedes and his father could have joined him. He had no fears as to how he should live. Good seamen are welcome everywhere. He spoke Italian like a Tuscan, and Spanish like a Castilian. He would have been free and happy with Mercedes and his father, whereas he was now confined in the Chateau d'If, that impregnable fortress. Ignorant of the future destiny of his father and Mercedes, and all this because he had trusted to Villefort's promise. The thought was maddening, and Dante threw himself furiously down on his straw. The next morning, at the same hour, the jailer came again. Well, said the jailer, are you more reasonable today? Dante made no reply. Come, cheer up. Is there anything that I can do for you? I wish to see the governor. I have already told you it was impossible. Why so? Because it is against prison rules, and prisoners must not even ask for it. What is allowed, then? Better fare, if you pay for it, books and leave to walk about. I do not want books. I am satisfied with my food and do not care to walk about. But I wish to see the governor. If you worry me by repeating the same thing, I will not bring you any more to eat. Well, then, said Edmond, if you do not, I shall die of hunger. That is all. The jailer saw by his tone he would be happy to die, and as every prisoner is worth ten sous a day to his jailer, he replied in a more subdued tone, What you ask is impossible, but if you are very well behaved, you will be allowed to walk about, and some day you will meet the governor, and if he chooses to reply, that is his affair. But, asked Dante, how long shall I have to wait? Ah, a month, six months, a year. It is too long a time. I wish to see him at once. Ah, said the jailer, do not always brood over what is impossible, or you will be mad in a fortnight. You think so? Yes. We have an instance here. It was by always offering a million of francs to the governor for his liberty that an abbe became mad, who was in this chamber before you. How long has he left it? Two years. Was he liberated then? No. He was put in a dungeon. Listen, said Dante. I am not an abbe. I am not mad. Perhaps I shall be, but at present, unfortunately, I am not. I'll make you another offer. What is that? I do not offer you a million, because I have it not. But I will give you a hundred crowns if, the first time you go to Marseille, you will seek out a young girl named Mercedes at the Catalan and give her two lines from me. If I took them and were detected, I should lose my place, which is worth two thousand francs a year, so that I should be a great fool to run such a risk for three hundred. Well, said Dante, mark this. If you refuse at least to tell Mercedes I am here, I will some day hide myself behind the door, and when you enter... I would dash out your brains with this stool. Threats, 
cried the jailer, retreating and putting himself on the defensive. You were certainly going mad. The abbe began like you, and in three days you will be like him, mad enough to tie up. But fortunately there are dungeons here. Dante whirled the stool round his head. All right, all right, said the jailer. All right, since you will have it so, I will send word to the governor. Very well, returned Dante, dropping the stool and sitting on it as if he were in reality mad. The jailer went out and returned in an instant with a corporal and four soldiers. By the governor's orders, said he, conduct the prisoner to the tier beneath. To the dungeon, then, said the corporal. Yes, we must put the madman with the madmen. The soldiers seized Dante, who followed passively. He descended fifteen steps, and the door of a dungeon was opened, and he was thrust in. The door closed, and Dante advanced with outstretched hands until he touched the wall. He then sat down in the corner until his eyes became accustomed to the darkness. The jailer was right. Dante wanted but little of being utterly mad. End of chapter 8Chapter 9 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Evening of the Betrothal. Villefort had, as we have said, hastened back to Madame de Saint Méran's in the Place du Grand Cour, and on entering the house found that the guests whom he had left at table were taking coffee in the salon. Rene was, with all the rest of the company, anxiously awaiting him and his entrance was followed by a general exclamation. Well, decapitator, guardian of the state, royalist, brutus, what is the matter? said one. Speak out. Are we threatened with a fresh reign of terror? asked another. Has the Corsican ogre broken loose? cried a third. Marquise, said Villefort, approaching his future mother-in-law, I request your pardon for thus leaving you. Will the Marquis honour me by a few moments' private conversation? Ah, it is a really serious matter, then, asked the Marquis, remarking the cloud on Villefort's brow. So serious that I must take leave of you for a few days, so, added he, turning to René. Judge for yourself, if it be not important. You are not going to leave us, cried René, unable to hide her emotion at this unexpected announcement. Alas, returned Villefort, I must. Where, then, are you going? asked the Marquise. That, madame, is an official secret, but if you have any commissions for Paris, a friend of mine is going there tonight, and will with pleasure undertake them. The guests looked at each other. You wish to speak to me alone? said the Marquis. Yes, let us go to the library, please. The Marquis took his arm and they left the stallon. Well, asked he, as soon as they were by themselves, tell me what it is. An affair of the greatest importance that demands my immediate presence in Paris. Now, excuse the indiscretion, Marquis, but have you any landed property? All my fortune is in the funds, seven or eight hundred thousand francs. 
Then sell out, sell out, Marquis, or you will lose it all. How can I sell out here? You have a broker, have you not? Yes. Then give me a letter to him, and tell him to sell out without an instant's delay. Perhaps even now I shall arrive too late. The juice, you say, replied the Marquis. Let us lose no time, then. And sitting down, he wrote a letter to his broker, ordering him to sell out at the market price. And now then, said Villefort, placing the letter in his pocketbook, I must have another. To whom? To the king. To the king? Yes. I dare not write to his majesty. I do not ask you to write to his majesty, but ask Monsieur de Salvieux to do so. I want a letter that will enable me to reach the king's presence without all the formalities of demanding an audience. That would occasion a loss of precious time. But address yourself to the keeper of the seals. He has the right of entry at the Tuileries and can procure your audience at any hour of the day or night. Doubtless, but there is no occasion to divide the honours of my discovery with him. The keeper would leave me in the background and take all the glory to himself. I tell you, Marquis, my fortune is made if I only reach the Tuileries the first, for the king will not forget the service I do him. In that case, go and get ready. I will call Salvieux and make him write the letter. Be as quick as possible. I must be on the road in quarter of an hour. Tell your coachman to stop at the door. You will present my excuses to the Marquise and Mademoiselle René, whom I leave on such a day with great regret. You will find them both here and can make your farewells in person. A thousand thanks. And now for the letter. The Marquis rang. A servant entered. Say to the Comte de Salvieux that I would like to see him. Now then, go, said the Marquis. I shall be gone only a few moments. Vifor hastily quitted the apartment, but reflecting that the sight of the deputy procureur running through the streets would be enough to throw the whole city into confusion, he resumed his ordinary pace. At his door, he perceived a figure in the shadow that seemed to wait for him. It was Mercedes, who, hearing no news of her lover, had come unobserved to inquire after him. As Villefort drew near, she advanced and stood before him. Dante had spoken of Mercedes, and Villefort instantly recognised her. Her beauty and high bearing surprised him, and when she inquired what had become of her lover, it seemed to him that she was the judge and he the accused. The young man you speak of, said Villefort abruptly, is a great criminal, and I can do nothing for him, mademoiselle. Mercedes burst into tears, and as Villefort strove to pass her, again addressed him. But at least tell me where he is, that I may know whether he is alive or dead, said she. I do not know. He is no longer in my hands, replied Villefort. And, desirous of putting an end to the interview, he pushed by her and closed the door, as if to exclude the pain he felt. But remorse is not thus banished. Like Virgil's wounded hero, he carried the arrow in his wound and arrived at the salon. Villefort uttered a sigh that was almost a sob and sank into a chair.
Then the first pangs of an unending torture seized upon his heart. The man he sacrificed to his ambition, that innocent victim immolated on the altar of his father's faults, appeared to him pale and threatening, leading his affianced bride by the hand and bringing with him remorse, not such as the ancients figured furious and terrible, but that slow and consuming agony whose pangs are intensified from hour to hour up to the very moment of death. Then he had a moment's hesitation. He had frequently called for capital punishment on criminals, and owing to his irresistible eloquence they had been condemned, and yet the slightest shadow of remorse had never clouded Villefort's brow, because they were guilty, at least he believed so. But here was an innocent man whose happiness he had destroyed. In this case, he was not the judge, but the executioner. As he thus reflected, he felt the sensation we have described and which had hitherto been unknown to him arise in his bosom and fill him with vague apprehensions. It is thus that a wounded man trembles instinctively at the approach of the finger to his wound until it be healed. But Villefort's was one of those that never close, or if they do, only close to reopen more agonising than ever. If at this moment the sweet voice of René had sounded in his ears, pleading for mercy, or the fair Mercedes had entered and said, In the name of God, I conjure you to restore my affianced husband, his cold and trembling hands would have signed his release. But no voice broke the stillness of the chamber, and the door was opened only by Villefort's valet, who came to tell him that the travelling carriage was in readiness. Villefort arose, or rather sprang, from his chair, hastily opened one of the drawers of his desk, emptied all the gold it contained into his pocket, stood motionless an instant, his hand pressed to his head, muttered a few inarticulate sounds, and then, perceiving that his servant had placed his cloak on his shoulders, he sprang into the carriage, ordering the postilions to drive to Monsieur de Saint-Méron's. The hapless Dante was doomed. As the Marquis had promised, Villefort found the Marquise and René in waiting. He started when he saw René, for he fancied she was again about to plead for Dante. Alas, her emotions were wholly personal. She was thinking only of Villefort's departure. She loved Villefort, and he left her at the moment he was about to become her husband. Villefort knew not when he should return, and René, far from pleading for Dante, hated the man whose crime separated her from her lover. Meanwhile, what of Mercedes? She had met Fernand at the corner of the Rue de la Loge. She had returned to the Catalans, and had despairingly cast herself on her couch. Fernand, kneeling by her side, took her hand and covered it with kisses that Mercedes did not even feel. She passed the night thus. The lamp went out for want of oil, but she paid no heed to the darkness, and dawn came, but she knew not that it was day. Grief had made her blind to all but one object. That was Edmond. Ah, you are there she said at length, turning towards Fernand. "'I have not quieted you since yesterday,' returned Fernand sorrowfully. Monsieur Morel had not readily given up the fight. 
he'd learned that Dante had been taken to prison, and he had gone to all his friends and the influential persons of the city. But the report was already in circulation that Dante was arrested as a Bonapartist agent, and as the most sanguine looked upon any attempt of Napoleon to remount the throne as impossible, he met nothing but refusal, and had returned home in despair, declaring that the matter was serious, and that nothing more could be done. Caderousse was equally restless and uneasy, but instead of seeking, like Monsieur Morel, to aid Dante, he had shut himself up with two bottles of black currant brandy in the hope of drowning reflection. But he did not succeed, and became too intoxicated to fetch any more drink, and yet not so intoxicated as to forget what had happened. With his elbows on the table, he sat between the two empty bottles, while spectres danced in the light of the unsnuffed candle, spectres such as Hoffman strews over his punch-drenched pages like black, fantastic dust. Donglar alone was content and joyous. He had got rid of an enemy and made his own situation on the Ferroan secure. Donglar was one of those men born with a pen behind the ear and an inkstand in place of a heart. Everything with him was multiplication or subtraction. The life of a man was to him of far less value than a numeral, especially when, by taking it away, he could increase the sum total of his own desires. He went to bed at his usual hour and slept in peace. Villefort, after having received Monsieur de Salvieux's letter, embraced René, kissed the Marquis's hand, and shaken that of the Marquis, started for Paris along the X road. Old Dante was dying with anxiety to know what had become of Edmond, but we know very well what had become of Edmond. End of chapter 9「The King's Closet at the Tuileries » We will leave Villefort on the road to Paris, travelling, thanks to trebled fees, with all speed and passing through two or three apartments, enter at the Tuileries the little room with the arched window so well known as having been the favourite closet of Napoleon and Louis XVIII, and now of Louis-Philippe. There, seated before a walnut table, he had brought with him from Hartwell, and to which, from one of those fancies not uncommon to great people, he was particularly attached. The king, Louis XVIII, was carelessly listening to a man of fifty or fifty-two years of age, with grey hair, aristocratic bearing, and exceedingly gentlemanly attire, and meanwhile making a marginal note in a volume of Griffiths's rather inaccurate but much sought-after edition of Horace, a work which was much indebted to the sagacious observations of the philosophical monarch. "'You say, sir,' said the king, "'that I am exceedingly disquieted, sire. Really, have you had a vision of the seven fat kine and the seven lean kine?' No, sire, for that would only betoken for us seven years of plenty and seven years of sour scarcity. And when a king as full of foresight as your majesty, 
scarcity is not a thing to be feared. Then of what other scourge are you afraid, my dear Blacca? Sire, I have every reason to believe that a storm is brewing in the south. Well, my dear Duke, replied Louis Eighteenth, I think you are wrongly informed, and know positively that, on the contrary, it is very fine weather in that direction. Man of ability as he was, Louis Eighteenth liked a pleasant jest. Sire, continued Monsieur de Blacas, if it only be to reassure a faithful servant, will your majesty send into Languedoc, Provence and Dauphine, trusty men, who will bring you back a faithful report as to the feeling in these three provinces? Caninus Sordis, replied the king, continuing the annotations in his Horace. Sire, replied the courtier, laughing in order that he might seem to comprehend the quotation, your majesty may be perfectly right in relying on the good feeling of France, but I fear I am not altogether wrong in dreading some desperate attempt. By whom? By Bonaparte, or at least by his adherents. My dear Blacca, said the king, you with your alarms prevent me from working. And you, sire, Prevent me from sleeping with your security. Wait, my dear sir, wait a moment, for I have such a delightful note on the pastor Quam Traheret. Wait, and I will listen to you afterwards. There was a brief pause during which Louis Eighteenth wrote, in a hand as small as possible, another note on the margin of his Horace, and then, looking at the Duke with the air of a man who thinks he has an idea of his own, while he is only commenting upon the idea of another, said, Go on, my dear duke, go on, I listen. Sire, said Blacard, who had for a moment the hope of sacrificing Villefort to his own profit, I am compelled to tell you that these are not mere rumours destitute of foundation which thus disquiet me, but a serious-minded man, deserving all my confidence, and charged by me to watch over the South, the Duke hesitated as he pronounced these words, has arrived by post to tell me that a great peril threatens the King, and so I hasten to you, sire. Mala ducis avi domum, continued Louis XVIII, still annotating, does your majesty wish me to drop the subject? By no means, my dear duke, but just stretch out your hand. Which? Whichever you please, there to the left. Here, sire. I tell you the left, and you are looking to the right. I mean on my left. Yes, there. You will find yesterday's report of the minister of police. But here is Mr. Dondre himself, and Monsieur Dondre announced by the chamberlain in waiting, entered. Come in, said Louis Eighteenth, with repressed smile. Come in, Baron, and tell the Duke all you know, the latest news of Monsieur de Bonaparte. Do not conceal anything, however serious. Let us see, the island of Elba is a volcano, and we may expect to have issuing thence flaming and bristling warbella, horrida bella. Monsieur Dondre, leaned very respectfully on the back of a chair 
with his two hands and said, Has your majesty perused yesterday's rapport? Yes, yes, but tell the duke himself, who cannot find anything, what the report contains, and give him the particulars of what the usurper is doing in his islet. Oh, monsieur, said the baron to the duke, all the servants of his majesty must approve of the latest intelligence, which we have from the island of Elba, Bonaparte. Monsieur Dandre looked at Louis Eighteenth, who, employed in writing a note, did not even raise his head. Bonaparte, continued the baron, is mortally wearied and passes all days in watching his miners at work at Porto Longone. And scratches himself for amusement, added the king. Uh, scratches himself, inquired the duke. What does your majesty mean? Yes, indeed, my dear duke. Did you forget that this great man, this hero, this demigod, is attacked with a malady of the skin, which worries him to death, a prurigo? And moreover, my dear duke, continued the minister of police, we are almost assured that in a very short time the usurper will be insane. Insane? Raving mad. His head becomes weaker. Sometimes he weeps bitterly, sometimes laughs boisterously. At other times he passes hours on the seashore, flinging stones in the water, and when the flint makes a duck and drake five or six times, he appears as delighted as if he had gained another Marengo or Austerlitz. Now, you must agree that these are indubitable symptoms of insanity. Or of wisdom, my dear Baron, or of wisdom, said Louis Eighteenth, laughing. <laughs> the greatest captains of antiquity amuse themselves by casting pebbles into the ocean. See Plutarch's life of Scipio Africanus. Monsieur de Blacas pondered deeply between the confident monarch and the truthful minister. Villefort, who did not choose to reveal the whole secret, lest another should reap all the benefit of the disclosure, had yet communicated enough to cause him the greatest uneasiness. Well, well, Dandre, said Louis Eighteenth, Blacas is not yet convinced. Let us proceed, therefore, to the usurper's conversion. The Minister of Police bowed. The usurper's conversion, murmured the Duke, looking at the King, and Dandre, who spoke alternatively like Virgil Shepherds. The usurper converted? Decidedly, my dear Duke. In what way converted? To good principles. Tell him all about it, Baron. Why, this is the way of it, said the minister, with the gravest air in the world. Napoleon lately had a review, and as two or three of his old veterans expressed a desire to return to France, he gave them their dismissal and exhorted them to serve the good king. These were his own words. Of that I am certain. Well, Blacca, what think you of this? inquired the king triumphantly and pausing for a moment from the voluminous scholiast before him. I say, sire, that the minister of police is greatly deceived, or I am, and as it is impossible it can be the minister of police, 
as he has the guardianship of the safety and honor of your majesty, it is probable that I am in error. However, sire, if I might advise, your majesty will interrogate the person of whom I spoke to you, and I will urge your majesty to do him this honor. Most willingly, duke, under your auspices I will receive any person you please, but you must not expect me to be too confiding. Baron, have you any report more recent than this dated the 20th of February? This is the 4th of March. No, sire, but I am hourly expecting one. It may have arrived since I left my office. Go thither, and if there be none, well, well, continued Louis Eighteenth, make one. That is the usual way, is it not? And the king laughed facetiously. Oh, sire, replied the minister, we have no occasion to invent any. Every day our desks are loaded with most circumstantial denunciations, coming from hosts of people who hope for some return for services which they seek to render, but cannot. They trust to fortune and rely upon some unexpected event in some way to justify their predictions. Well, sir, go, said Louis Eighteenth, and remember that I am waiting for you. I will but go and return, sire. I shall be back in ten minutes. And I, sire, said Monsieur de Blacas, will go and find my messenger. Wait, uh, sir, wait, said Louis Eighteenth. Really, Monsieur de Blacas, I must change your armorial bearings. I will give you an eagle with outstretched wings, holding in its claws a prey which tries in vain to escape, and bearing this device, Tenax. Sire, I listen, said de Blacas, biting his nails with impatience. I wish to consult you on this passage. Molly Fugiens and Helitu. You know it refers to a stag flying from a wolf. Are you not a sportsman and a great wolf hunter? Well then, what do you think of the Molly and Helitu? Admirable, sire. But my messenger is like the stag you refer to, for he has posted 220 leagues in scarcely three days. Which is undergoing a great fatigue and anxiety, my dear duke. When we have a telegraph which transmits messages in three or four hours, and that without getting in the least out of breath. Oh, sire, you recompense but badly this poor young man, who has come so far, and with so much ardor, to give your majesty useful information, if only for the sake of Monsieur de Salvieux, who recommends him to me. I entreat your majesty to receive him graciously. Monsieur de Salvieux, my brother's chamberlain, Yes, sire. He is at Marseille, and writes me thence. Does he speak to you of this conspiracy? No, but strongly recommends Monsieur de Villefort, and begs me to present him to your majesty. Monsieur de Villefort, cried the king. Is the messenger's name Monsieur de Villefort? Yes, sire. And he comes from Marseille? In person. Why did you not mention his name at once? replied the king, betraying some uneasiness. Sire, I thought his name was unknown to your majesty. 
No, no, Blackach. He is a man of strong and elevated understanding, ambitious too. And pardieu, you know his father's name? His father? Yes, Noirtier. Noirtier the Girondin? Noirtier the Senator? He himself. And your majesty has employed the son of such a man? Blacquin, my friend, you have but limited comprehension. I told you Villefort was ambitious. And to attain his ambition, Villefort would sacrifice everything, even his father. Then, sire, may I present him? This instant, duke, where is he? Waiting below, in my carriage. Seek him at once. I hasten to do so. The duke left the royal presence with the speed of a young man. His really sincere royalism made him youthful again. Louis XVIII remained alone, and turning his eyes on his half-opened Horace, muttered, Justum et tanacem probositi virum. Monsieur de Blacas returned as speedily as he had departed, but in the antechamber he was forced to appeal to the king's authority. Villefort's dusty garb, his costume, which was not of courtly cut, excited the susceptibility of Monsieur de Breze, who was all astonishment at finding that this young man had the audacity to enter before the king in such attire. The duke, however, overcame all difficulties with a word, His Majesty's order, and in spite of the protestations which the Master of Ceremonies made for the honour of his office and principles, Villefort was introduced. The king was seated in the same place where the duke had left him. On opening the door, Villefort found himself facing him, and the young magistrate's first impulse was to pause. "'Come in, Monsieur de Villefort,' said the king. "'Come in!' Villefort bowed, and, advancing a few steps, waited until the king should interrogate him. "'Monsieur de Villefort,' said Louis XVIII, "'the Duke de Blacas assures me you have some interesting information to communicate. Sire, the Duke is right, and I believe your Majesty will think it equally important. In the first place, and before everything else, sir, is the news as bad, in your opinion, as I am asked to believe? Sire, I believe it to be most urgent, but I hope, for the speed I have used, that it is not irreparable. Speak as fully as you please, sir, said the king, who began to give way to the emotion which had showed itself in Blacquard's face and affected Villefort's voice. Speak, sir, and pray begin at the beginning. I like order in everything. Sire, said Villefort, I will render a faithful report to your majesty, but I must entreat your forgiveness if my anxiety leads to some obscurity in my language. A glance at the king after his this discreet and subtle exordium assured Villefort of the benignity of his august auditor, and he went on. Sire, I have come as rapidly to Paris as possible to inform your majesty that I have discovered, in the exercise of my duties, not a commonplace and insignificant plot, such as is every day got up in the lower ranks of the people and in the army, but an actual conspiracy, a storm which menaces no less than your majesty's throne. Sire, 
the usurper is arming three ships. He meditates some project, which, however mad, is yet perhaps terrible. At this moment, he will have left Elba to go whither I know not, but assuredly to attempt a landing either at Naples or on the coast of Tuscany, or perhaps on the shores of France. Your Majesty is well aware that the sovereign of the island of Elba has maintained his relations with Italy and France. I am, sir, said the king, much agitated, and recently we have had information that the Bonapartist clubs have had meetings in the Rue Saint-Jacques. But proceed, I beg of you, how did you obtain these details? Sire, they are the results of an examination which I have made of a man of Marseille, whom I have watched for some time, and arrested on the day of my departure. This person, a sailor of turbulent character, and whom I suspected of Bonapartism, has been secretly to the island of Elba. There he saw the Grand Marshal, who charged him with an oral message to a Bonapartist in Paris, whose name I could not extract from him, but this mission was to prepare men's minds for a return. It is the man who says this, sire. A return which will soon occur. And where is this man? In prison, sir, sire. And the matter seems serious to you? So serious, sire, that when the circumstance surprised me in the midst of a family festival, on the very day of my betrothal, I left my bride and friends, postponing everything, that I might hasten to lay at your majesty's feet the fears which impressed me, and the assurance of my devotion. True, said Louis XVIII, was there not a marriage engagement between you and Mademoiselle de Saint-Méran? daughter of one of your majesty's most faithful servants. Yes, yes, but let us talk of this plot, Monsieur de Villefort. Sire, I fear it is more than a plot. I fear it is a conspiracy. A conspiracy in these times, said Louis XVIII, smiling, is a thing very easy to meditate, but more difficult to conduct to an end, inasmuch as re-established so recently on the throne of our ancestors, we have our eyes open at once upon the past, the present, and the future. For the last ten months, my ministers have redoubled their vigilance in order to watch the shore of the Mediterranean. If Bonaparte landed at Naples, the whole coalition would be on foot before he could even reach Piomono. If he landed in Tuscany, he would be in an unfriendly territory. If he landed in France, it must be with a handful of men, and the result of that would be easily foretold, execrated as he is by the population. Take courage, sir, but at the same time rely on our royal gratitude. Ah, here is Monsieur Dondre, cried de Blacas. At this instant, the minister of police appeared at the door, pale, trembling, and as if ready to faint. Villefort was about to retire, but Monsieur de Blacas, taking his hand, restrained him. End of chapter 10
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Corsican Ogre At the sight of this agitation, Louis XVIII pushed from him violently the table at which he was sitting. "'What ails you, Baron?' he exclaimed. "'You appear quite aghast. Has your uneasiness anything to do with what Monsieur de Blacas has told me, and Monsieur de Villefort has just confirmed?' Monsieur de Blacas moved suddenly towards the baron, but the fright of the courtier pleaded for the forbearance of the statesman, and besides, as matters were, it was much more to his advantage that the prefect of police should triumph over him than that he should humiliate the prefect. "'Sire,' stammered the baron. "'Well, what is it?' asked Louis Eighteenth, the minister of police, giving way to an impulse of despair, was about to throw himself at the feet of Louis Eighteenth, who retreated a step and frowned. "'Will you speak?' he said. "'Oh, sire, what a dreadful misfortune! I am indeed to be pitied. I can never forgive myself.' "'Monsieur,' said Louis Eighteenth, "'I command you to speak.' "'Well, sire, the usurper left Elba on the 26th of February.' and landed on the 1st of March. "'And where? In Italy?' asked the king eagerly. "'In France, sir, at a small port near Antibes, in the Gulf of Juan.' "'The usurper landed in France, near Antibes, in the Gulf of Juan, 250 leagues from Paris, on the 1st of March, and you only acquired this information today, the 4th of March? Well, sir,' What you tell me is impossible. You must have received a false report, or you have gone mad. Alas, sire, it is but too true. Louis made a gesture of indescribable anger and alarm, and then drew himself up as if this sudden blow had struck him at the same moment in heart and countenance. In France, he cried, the usurper in France? Then they did not watch over this man. Who knows, they were perhaps in league with him. Oh, sire, exclaimed the Duc de Blacroix, Monsieur Dondre is not a man to be accused of treason. Sire, we have all been blind, and the minister of police has shared the general blindness, that is all. But, said Villefort, and then suddenly checking himself, he was silent. Then he continued, Your pardon, sire he said, bowing. My zeal carried me away. Will your majesty deign to excuse me? Speak, sir, speak boldly, replied Louis. You alone forewarned us of the evil. Now try and aid us with the remedy. Sire, said Villefort, the usurper is detested in the south, and it seems to me that if he ventured into the south, it would be easy to raise a Languedoc and Provence against him. Yes, assuredly, replied the minister. But he is advancing by Gap and Cisteron. Advancing? He is advancing? said Louis Eighteenth. Is he then advancing on Paris? The minister of police maintained a silence which was equivalent to a complete avowal. And Dauphine, sir? inquired the king of Villefort. Do you think it possible to rouse that as well as Provence? Sire, I am sorry to tell your majesty a cruel fact, 
But the feeling in Dauphine is quite the reverse of that in Provence or Languedoc. The mountaineers are Bonapartists, sire. Then, murmured Louis, he was well informed. And how many men had he with him? I do not know, sire, answered the minister of police. What? You do not know? Have you neglected to obtain information on that point? Of course it is of no consequence, he added with a withering smile. Sire, it was impossible to learn. Uh, the dispatch simply stated the fact of the landing and the route taken by the usurper. And how did this dispatch reach you? inquired the king. The minister bowed his head, and while a deep colour overspread his cheeks, he stammered out, By the telegraph, sire. Louis XVIII advanced a step and folded his arms over his chest, as Napoleon would have done. So then, he exclaimed, turning pale with anger, seven conjoined and allied armies overthrow that man. A miracle of heaven replaced me on the throne of my fathers after five and twenty years of exile. I have, during those five and twenty years, spared no pains to understand the people of France and the interests which were confided to me. And now, when I see the fruition of my wishes almost within reach, the power I hold in my hands bursts and shatters me to atoms. Sire, it is a fatality, murmured the minister, feeling that the pressure of circumstances, however light a thing to destiny, was too much for any human strength to endure. What our enemies say of us is then true. We have learnt nothing, forgotten nothing. If I were betrayed as he was, I would console myself, but to be in the midst of persons elevated by myself to places of honour, who ought to watch over me more carefully than of over themselves, for my fortune is theirs, before me they were nothing. After me, they will be nothing, and perish miserably from incapacity, ineptitude. Oh, yes, sir, you are right. It is fatality. The minister quailed before this outburst of sarcasm. Monsieur de Blacas wiped the moisture from his brow. Villefort smiled within himself, for he felt his increased importance. To fall, continued King Louis, who at the first glance had sounded the abyss on which the monarchy hung suspended. To fall, and learn of that fall by my telegraph? Oh, I would rather mount the scaffold of my brother. Louis Sixteenth, than thus descend the staircase at the Tuileries, driven away by ridicule. Ridicule, sir! Why, you know not its power in France, and yet you ought to know it. Sire, sire, murmured the minister, for pity's... Approach, Monsieur de Villefort, resumed the king, addressing the young man, who, motionless and breathless, was listening to a conversation on which depended the destiny of a kingdom. Approach, and tell monsieur that it is possible to know beforehand all that he has not known. Sire, it was really impossible to learn secrets which that man concealed from all the world. Really impossible? Yes, that is a great word, sir. Unfortunately, there are great words, as there are great men. I have measured them. Really impossible for a minister who has an office 
agents, spies, and 1,500,000 francs for Secret Service money to know what is going on at 60 leagues from the coast of France? Well then, see, here is a gentleman who had none of these resources at his disposal. A gentleman, only a simple magistrate, who learned more than you with all your police and who would have saved my crown if, like you, he had the power of directing a telegraph. The look of the Minister of Police was turned with concentrated spite on Villefort, who bent his head in modest triumph. I do not mean that for you, Blacca, continued Louis Eighteenth. for if you have discovered nothing, at least you have had the good sense to persevere in your suspicions. Any other than yourself would have considered the disclosure of Monsieur de Villefort insignificant, or else dictated by venal ambition. These words were an allusion to the sentiments which the Minister of Police had uttered with so much confidence an hour before. Villefort understood the King's intent. Any other person would perhaps have been overcome by such an intoxicating draught of praise, but he feared to make for himself a mortal enemy of the police minister, although he saw that Dondre was irrevocably lost. In fact, the minister, who in the plenitude of his power had been unable to unearth Napoleon's secret, might in despair at his own downfall interrogate Dante, and so lay bare the motives of Villefort's plot. Realising this, Villefort came to the rescue of the crestfallen minister, instead of aiding to crush him. Sire, said Villefort, the suddenness of this event must prove to your majesty that the issue is in the hands of providence. What your majesty is pleased to attribute to me as profound perspicacity is simply owing to chance, and I have profited by that chance like a good and devoted servant. That's all. Do not attribute to me more than I deserve, sire, that your majesty may never have occasion to recall the first opinion you are pleased to form of me. The Minister of Police thanked the young man by an eloquent look, and Villefort understood that he had succeeded in his design. That is to say that without forfeiting the gratitude of the king, he had made a friend of one on whom, in case of necessity, he might rely. It is well, resumed the king, and now, gentlemen, he continued, turning towards Monsieur de Blacas and the Minister of Police, I have no further occasion for you, and you may retire. What now remains to do is in the department of the Minister of War. Fortunately, sire, said Monsieur de Blacas, we can rely on the army. Your Majesty knows how every report confirms their loyalty and attachment. Do not mention reports, Duke, to me, for I know now what confidence to place in them. Yet, speaking of reports, Baron, what have you learned with regard to the affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques? The affair in the Rue Saint-Jacques, exclaimed Villefort, unable to repress an exclamation. Then, suddenly pausing, he added, Your pardon, sire. But my devotion to your majesty has made me forget not the respect I have, for that is too deeply engraved in my heart, but the rules of etiquette. Go on, go on, sir, replied the king. You have today earned the right to make inquiries here. 
Sire, interposed the Minister of Police, I came a moment ago to give your Majesty fresh information, which I had obtained on his head. When your Majesty's attention was attracted by the terrible event that has occurred in the Gulf, and now these facts will cease to interest your Majesty. On the contrary, sir, on the contrary, said Louis XVIII. This affair seems to me to have a decided connection with that which occupies our attention, and the death of General Kennel will perhaps put us on the direct track of a great internal conspiracy. At the name of General Kennel, Villefort trembled. Everything points to the conclusion, sire, said the Minister of Police, that death was not the result of a suicide, as we first believed, but of assassination. General Kennel, it appears, had just left a Bonapartist club when he disappeared. An unknown person had been with him that morning and made an appointment with him in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Unfortunately, the general's valet, who was dressing his hair at the moment when the stranger entered, heard the street mentioned, but did not catch the number. As the police minister related this to the king, Villefort, who looked as if his very life hung on the speaker's lips, turned alternately red and pale. The king looked towards him. Do you not think with me, Monsieur de Villefort, that General Canel, whom they believe attached to the usurper, but who was really entirely devoted to me, has perished the victim of a Bonapartist ambush? It is probable, sire, replied Villefort. But is this all that is known? They are on the track of the man who appointed the meeting with him. On his track? said Villefort. Yes, the servant has given his description. He is a man of from fifty to fifty-two years of age, dark, with black eyes covered with shaggy eyebrows, and a thick moustache. He was dressed in a blue frock coat, buttoned up to the chin, and wore at his buttonhole the rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honour. Yesterday, a person exactly corresponding with this description was followed, but he was lost sight of at the corner of the Rue de la Jussienne and the Rue Coqueron. Villefort leaned on the back of an armchair, for as the Minister of Police went on speaking, he felt his legs bend under him. But when he learned that the unknown had escaped the vigilance of the agent who followed him, he breathed again. Continue to seek for this man, sir, said the King to the Minister of Police. For if, as I am all but convinced, General Quenel, who would have been so useful to us at this moment, has been murdered, his assassins, Bonapartists or not, shall be cruelly punished. It required all Villefort's coolness not to betray the terror with which this declaration of the king inspired him. How strange, continued the king with some asperity, the police think that they have disposed of the whole matter when they say a murder has been committed, and especially so when they can add, and we are on the track of the guilty persons. Sire, your majesty will, I trust, be amply satisfied on this point at least. We shall see. I will no longer detain you, Monsieur de Villefort, 
for you must be fatigued after so long a journey. Go and rest. Of course, you can stop at your father's. A feeling of faintness came over Villefort. No, sire, he replied. I alighted at the Hotel de Madrid in the Rue de Tournon. But you have seen him? Sire, I went straight to the Duc de Blacas. But you will see him then? I think not, sire. Ah, I forgot, said Louis, smiling in a manner which proved that all these questions were not made without a motive. I forgot you and Monsieur Noirtier are not on the best terms possible, and that is another sacrifice made to the royal cause, and for which you should be recompensed. Sire, the kindness of your majesty deigns to evince towards me is a recompense which so far surpasses my uttermost ambition that I have nothing more to ask for. Never mind, sir. We will not forget you. Make your mind easy. In the meanwhile, the king here detached the cross of the Legion of Honour, which he usually wore over his blue coat near the cross of Saint-Louis, above the order of Notre-Dame du Mont-Carmel and Saint-Lazare, and gave it to Villefort. In the meanwhile, take this cross. Sire, said Villefort, your majesty mistakes. This is an officer's cross. Ma foi, said Louis Eighteenth, take it, such as it is, for I have not the time to procure you another. Blaca, let it be your care to see that the brevet is made out and sent to Monsieur de Villefort. Villefort's eyes were filled with tears of joy and pride. He took the cross and kissed it. And now, he said, may I inquire what are your orders with which your majesty deigns to honor me? Take what rest you require, and remember that if you are not able to serve me here in Paris, you may be of the greatest service to me at Marseille. Sire, replied Villefort, bowing, in an hour I shall have quitted Paris. Go, sir, said the king, and should I forget you? King's memories are short. Do not be afraid to bring yourself to my recollection. Baron, send for the Minister of War. Blaca, remain. Ah, oh, sir, said the Minister of Police to Villefort, as they left the Tuileries. You entered by Luck's door. Your fortune is made. Will it be long first? muttered Villefort, saluting the minister whose career was ended and looking about him for a hackney coach. One passed at the moment which he hailed. He gave his address to the driver, and springing in, threw himself on the seat, and gave loose to dreams of ambition. Ten minutes afterwards, Villefort reached his hotel, ordered horses to be ready in two hours, and asked to have his breakfast brought to him. He was about to begin his repast when the sound of the bell rang sharp and loud, the valet opened the door, and Villefort heard someone speak his name. "'Who could know that I was here already?' said the young man. The valet entered. "'Well,' said Villefort, "'what is it? Who rang? Who asked for me?' "'A stranger. You will not send his name.' "'A stranger who will not send in his name. What can he want with me?' "'He wishes to speak to you.' "'To me?' Yes. Did he mention my name? Yes. 
What sort of person is he? Why, sir, a man of about fifty. Short or tall? About your own height, sir. Dark or fair? Dark, very dark, with black eyes, black hair, black eyebrows. And how dressed? asked Villefort quickly. In a blue frock coat, buttoned up close, decorated with the Legion of Honour. It is he, said Villefort, turning pale. Et par Dieu, said the individual whose description we have twice given, entering the door. What a great deal of ceremony! Is it the custom in Marseille for sons to keep their fathers waiting in their ante-rooms? Father, cried Villefort, then I was not deceived. I felt sure it must be you. Well then, if you felt so sure, replied the newcomer, putting his cane in a corner and his hat on a chair, allow me to say, my dear Gérard, that it was not very filial of you to keep me waiting at the door. Leave us, Germain, said Villefort. The servant quitted the apartment with evident signs of astonishment. End of chapter 11「Father and Son」Monsieur Noirtier, for it was indeed he who entered, looked after the servant until the door was closed, and then, fearing, no doubt, that he might be overheard in the antechamber, he opened the door again nor was the precaution useless, as appeared from the rapid retreat of Germain, who proved that he was not exempt from the sin which ruined our first parents. Monsieur Noirtier then took the trouble to close and bolt the antechamber door, then that of the bedchamber, and then extended his hand to Villefort, who had followed all his motions with surprise which he could not conceal. "'Well, now, my dear Gérard,' said he to the young man with a very significant look. Do you know, you seem as if you were not very glad to see me. My dear father, said Villefort, I am on the contrary delighted, but I so little expected your visit that it has somewhat overcome me. But, my dear fellow, replied Monsieur Noirtier, seating himself, I might say the same thing to you. When you announce to me your wedding for the 28th of February, and on the 3rd of March you turn up here in Paris. And if I have come, my dear father, said Gérard, drawing closer to Monsieur Noirtier, do not complain, for it is for you that I came, and my journey will be your salvation. Ah, indeed, said Monsieur Noirtier, stretching himself out at his ease in the chair. Really, pray tell me all about it, for it must be interesting. Father, you have heard speak of a certain Bonapartist club in the Rue Saint-Jacques. Number 53. Yes, I am vice-president. Father, your coolness makes me shudder. Why, my dear boy? 
when a man has been proscribed by the mountaineers, has escaped from Paris in a ecat, been hunted over the plains of Bordeaux by Robespierre's bloodhounds, he becomes accustomed to most things. But go on, what about the club in Rue Saint-Jacques? Why, they induced General Canel to go there, and General Canel, who quitted his own house at nine o'clock in the evening, was found the next day in the Seine. And who told you this fine story? The king himself. Well then, in return for your story, continued Noirtier, I will tell you another. My dear father, I think I already know what you are about to tell me. Ah, you have heard of the landing of the emperor. Not so loud, father. I entreat you, for your own sake as well as mine. Yes, I heard this news, and knew it even before you could. For three days ago I posted from Marseille to Paris with all possible speed, half desperate at the enforced delay. Three days ago? You are crazy. Why, three days ago the emperor had not landed. No matter, I was aware of his intention. How did you know about it? By a letter addressed to you from the island of Elba. To me? To you, and which I discovered in the pocketbook of the messenger. Had that letter fallen into the hands of another, you, my dear father, would probably ere this have been shot. Villefort's father laughed. Ha, <laughs> ha, come, come, said he. Will the restoration adopt imperial methods so promptly? Shut, my dear boy? What an idea. Where is the letter you speak of? I know you too well to suppose you would allow such a thing to pass you. I burnt it, for fear that even a fragment should remain, for that letter must have led to your condemnation. And the destruction of your future prospects replied Noirtier. Yes, I can easily comprehend that. But I have nothing to fear while I have you to protect me. I do better than that, sir. I save you. You do? Why, really? The thing becomes more and more dramatic. Explain yourself. I must refer again to the club in the Rue Saint-Jacques, it appears that this club is rather a bore to the police. Why didn't they search more vigilantly? They would have found. They have not found. But they are on the track. Yes, that's the usual phrase. I am quite familiar with it. When the police is at fault, it declares that it is on the track. And the government patiently awaits the day when it comes to say with a sneaking air, that the track is lost. Yes, but they have found a corpse. The general has been killed, and in all countries they call that a murder. A murder, do you call it? Why? There is nothing to prove that the general was murdered. People are found every day in the Seine, having thrown themselves in or having been drowned from not knowing how to swim. Father, you knew very well that the general was not a man to drown himself in despair, 
and people do not bathe in the Seine in the month of January. No, no, do not be deceived. This was murder in every sense of the word. And who thus designated it? The king himself. The king! I thought he was philosopher enough to allow that there was no murder in politics. In politics, my dear fellow, you know as well as I do, there are no men but ideas, no feelings but interests. In politics we do not kill a man, we only remove an obstacle, that is all. Would you like to know how matters have progressed? Well, I will tell you. It was thought reliance might be placed in General Quenel. He was recommended to us from the island of Elba. One of us went to him and invited him to the Rue Saint-Jacques, where he would find some friends. He came there, and the plan was unfolded to him for leaving Elba, the projected landing, etc. When he had heard and comprehended all to the fullest extent, he replied that he was a royalist. Then all looked at each other. He was made to take an oath, and did so, but with such an ill grace that it was really tempting providence to swear him, and yet, in spite of that, the general was allowed to depart free, perfectly free. Yet he did not return home. What could that mean? Why, my dear fellow, that on leaving us he lost his way, that's all? A murder. Really, Villefort, you surprise me. You, a deputy procureur, to found an accusation on such bad premises. Did I ever say to you, when you were fulfilling your character as a royalist, and cut off the head of one of my party. My son, you have committed a murder. No, I said. Very well, sir, you have gained the victory. Tomorrow, perchance, it will be our turn. But, father, take care. When our turn comes, our revenge will be sweeping. I do not understand you. You rely on the usurper's return. We do. You are mistaken. He will not advance two leagues into the interior of France without being followed, tracked, and caught like a wild beast. My dear fellow, the Emperor is at this moment on the way to Grenoble. On the 10th or 12th, he will be at Lyon, and on the 20th or 25th, at Paris. The people will rise. Yes, to go and meet him. He has but a handful of men with him, and armies will be dispatched against him. Yes, to escort him into the capital. Really, my dear Gérard, you are but a child. You think yourself well informed because the telegraph has told you. Three days after the landing, the usurper has landed at Cannes with several men. He is pursued. But where is he? What is he doing? You do not know at all. And in this way they would chase him to Paris without drawing a trigger. 
Grenoble and Lyon are faithful cities and will oppose him to an impassable barrier. Grenoble will open her gates to him with enthusiasm. All Lyon will hasten to welcome him. Believe me, we are as well informed as you, and our police are as good as your own. Would you like a proof of it? Well, you wish to conceal your journey from me, and yet I knew of your arrival half an hour after you had passed the barrier. You gave your direction to no one but your postillion, yet I have your address, and in proof I am here, the very instant you are going to sit at table. Ring, then, if you please, for a second knife, fork, and plate, and we will dine together. Indeed, replied Villefort, looking at his father with astonishment. You really do seem very well informed. Eh? The thing is simple enough. You who are in power of only the means that money produces. We who are in expectation have those with devotion prompts. Devotion? said Villefort with a sneer. Yes, devotion, for that is, I believe, the phrase for hopeful ambition. And Villefort's father extended his hand to the bell-rope to summon the servant whom his son had not called. Villefort caught his arm. Wait, my dear father, said the young man, one word more. Say on. However stupid the royalist police may be, they do know one terrible thing. And what is that? The description of the man who, on the morning of the day when General Quenel disappeared, presented himself at his house. Oh, the admirable police have found that out, have they? And what may be that description? Dark complexion, hair, eyebrows and whiskers, black, blue frock coat, buttoned up to the chin, rosette of an officer of the Legion of Honor in his buttonhole, a hat with wide brim, and a cane. Aha, that is it, said Noirtier. And why then have they not laid hands on him? Because yesterday or the day before, they lost sight of him at the corner of the Rue Coqueron. Didn't I say that your police were good for nothing? Yes, but they may catch him yet. True, said Noirtier, looking carelessly around him. True, if this person were not on his guard as he is, and he added with a smile, he will consequently make a few changes in his personal appearance. At these words he rose and put off his frock coat and cravat, went towards a table on which he lay his son's toilet articles, lathered his face, took a razor and, with a firm hand, cut off the compromising whiskers. Villefort watched him with alarm, not devoid of admiration. His whiskers cut off, Noirtier gave another turn to his hair, took instead of his black cravat a coloured neckerchief which lay at the top of an open portmanteau, put on in lieu of his blue and high-buttoned frock-coat, a coat of Villefort's of dark brown, and cut away in front, tried on before the glass a narrow-brimmed hat of his son's, 
which appeared to fit him perfectly, and leaving his cane in the corner where he had deposited it, he took up a small bamboo switch, cut the air with it once or twice, and walked about with that easy swagger which has one of his principal characteristics. Well, he said, turning towards his wandering son, when his disguise was completed. Well, do you think your police will recognize me now? No, father, stammered Villefort. At, at, at least, I hope not. And now, my dear boy, continued Noirtier, I rely on your prudence to remove all the things which I leave in your care. Oh, rely on me, said Villefort. Yes, yes, and now I believe you are right, and that you have really saved my life. Be assured I will return the favour hereafter. Villefort shook his head. You are not convinced yet. I hope at least that you may be mistaken. Shall you see the king again? Perhaps. Would you pass in his eyes for a prophet? Prophets of evil are not in favour at the court, father. True, but some day they do them justice. And supposing a second restoration, you would then pass for a great man. Well, what should I say to the king? Say to him, Sire, you are deceived as to the feeling in France, as to the opinions of the towns and the prejudices of the army. He whom in Paris you call the Corsican ogre, who at Nevers is styled the usurper, is already saluted as Bonaparte at Lyon and Emperor at Grenoble. You think he is tracked, pursued, captured. He is advancing as rapidly as his own eagles. The soldiers you believe to be dying with hunger, worn out with fatigue, ready to desert, gather like atoms of snow about the rolling ball as it hastens onward. Sire, go. Leave France to its real master, to him who acquired it, not by purchase, but by right of conquest. Go, sire. Not that you incur any risk, for your adversary is powerful enough to show you mercy, but because it would be humiliating for a grandson of Saint Louis to owe his life to the man of Arcola, Marengo, Austerlitz. Tell him this, Gérard, or rather tell him nothing. Keep your journey a secret. Do not boast of what you have come to Paris to do, or have done. Return with all speed, enter Marseille at night and your house by the back door, and there remain, quiet, submissive, secret, and above all inoffensive, for this time I swear to you, we shall act like powerful men who know their enemies. Go, my son. Go, my dear Gérard, and by your obedience to my paternal orders, or if you prefer it, friendly counsels, we will keep you in your place. This will be, added Noirtier with a smile, one means by which you may a second time save me. 
if the political balance should someday take another turn and cast you aloft while hurling me down? Adieu, my dear Gérard, and at your next journey, alight at my door. Noirtier left the room when he had finished, with the same calmness that had characterised him during the whole of this remarkable and trying conversation. Villefort, pale and agitated, ran to the window, put aside the curtain and saw him pass, cool and collected, by two or three ill-looking men at the corner of the street, who were there, perhaps, to arrest a man with black whiskers and a blue frock coat and hat with broad brim. Villefort stood watching, breathless, until his father had disappeared at the Rue Bussy. Then he turned to the various articles he had left behind him, put the black cravat and blue frock coat at the bottom of the portmanteau, threw the hat into a dark closet, broke the cane into small bits and flung it in the fire, put on his travelling cap, and calling his valet, checked with a look the thousand questions he was ready to ask, paid his bill, sprang into his carriage, which was ready, learned at Lyon that Bonaparte had entered Grenoble, and in the midst of the tumult which prevailed along the road, at length reached Marseille, a prey to all the hopes and fears which enter into the heart of man with ambition and its first successes. End of chapter 12「Noirtier was a true prophet, and things progressed rapidly, as he had predicted. Everyone knows the history of the famous return from Elba, a return which was unprecedented in the past, and will probably remain without a counterpart in the future. Louis XVIII made but a faint attempt to parry this unexpected blow. The monarchy had scarcely reconstructed, tottered on its precarious foundation, and at a sign from the emperor, the incongruous structure of ancient prejudices and new ideas fell to the ground. Villefort, therefore, gained nothing save the king's gratitude, which was rather likely to injure him at the present time, and the cross of the Legion of Honour, which he had the prudence not to wear. Although Monsieur de Blacas had duly forwarded the brevet, Napoleon would doubtless have deprived Villefort of his office had it not been for Noirtier, who was all powerful at court, and thus the Girondin of ninety three and the senator of eighteen o six protected him, who so lately had been his protector. All Villefort's influence barely enabled him to stifle the secret Dante had so nearly divulged. The king's procureur alone was deprived of his office, being suspected of royalism. However, scarcely was the imperial power established, that is, scarcely had the emperor re-entered the Tuileries and begun to issue orders from the closet into which we have introduced our readers, he found on the table there Louis XVIII's half-filled snuff-box. Scarcely had this occurred when Marseille began, in spite of the authorities, to rekindle the flames of civil war, always smouldering in the south, and it required but little to excite the populace to acts of far greater violence 
than the shouts and insults with which they assailed the royalists whenever they ventured abroad. <clears throat> Owing to this change, the worthy shipowner became at that moment, we will not say all-powerful, because Morel was a prudent and rather timid man, so much so that many of the most zealous partisans of Bonaparte accused him of moderation, but sufficiently influential to make a demand in favour of Dante. Villefort retained his place, but his marriage was put off until a more favourable opportunity. If the emperor remained on the throne, Gérard required a different alliance to aid his career. If Louis XVIII returned, the influence of Monsieur de Saint-Marin, like his own, could be vastly increased, and the marriage be still more suitable. The deputy procureur was, therefore, the first magistrate of Marseille, when one morning his door opened, and Monsieur Morel was announced. Anyone else would have hastened to receive him, but Villefort was a man of ability, and he knew this would be a sign of weakness. He made Morel wait in the antechamber, although he had no one with him, for the simple reason that the king's procureur always makes everyone wait. And after passing a quarter of an hour in reading the papers, he ordered Monsieur Morel to be admitted. Morel expected Villefort would be dejected. He found him as he had found him six weeks before, calm, firm, and full of that glacial politeness, that most insurmountable barrier which separates the well-bred from the vulgar man. He had entered Villefort's office, expecting that the magistrate would tremble at the sight of him. On the contrary, he felt a cold shudder all over him when he saw Villefort sitting there with his elbow on his desk and his head leaning on his hand. He stopped at the door. Villefort gazed at him as if he had some difficulty in recognising him. Then, after a brief interval, during which the honest shipowner turned his hat in his hands, Monsieur Morel, I believe, said Monsieur Villefort. Yes, sir. Come nearer, said the magistrate with a patronising wave of the hand, and tell me to what circumstance I owe the honour of this visit. Do you not guess, monsieur? asked Monsieur Morel. Not in the least, but if I can serve you in any way, I shall be delighted. Everything depends on you. Explain yourself, pray. Monsieur, said Morel, recovering his assurance as he proceeded, do you recollect that a few days before the landing of His Majesty the Emperor, I came to intercede for a young man, the mate of my ship, who was accused of being concerned in correspondence with the island of Elba. What was the other day a crime is today a title to favour? You then served Louis XVIII, and you did not show any favour. It was your duty. Today you serve Napoleon, and you are to protect him. It is equally your duty. I come, therefore, to ask what has become of him. Villefort, by a strong effort, sought to control himself. What is his name? said he. Tell me his name. Edmond Dante. Villefort would probably have rather stood opposite the muzzle of a pistol at five and twenty paces than have heard this name spoken, but he did not blanch. Dante, repeated he. Edmond Dante. Yes, monsieur, 
Villefort opened a large register, then went to a table. From the table turned to his registers, and then, turning to Morel, "'Are you quite sure you are not mistaken, monsieur?' said he, in the most natural tone in the world. Had Morel been a more quick-sighted man, or better versed in these matters, he would have been surprised at the king's procureur answering him on such a subject, instead of referring him to the governors of the prison, or the prefect of the department. But Morel, disappointed in his expectations of exciting fear, was conscious only of the other's condescension. Villefort had calculated rightly. No, said Morel, I am not mistaken. I have known him for ten years, the last four of which he was in my service. Do not you recollect, I came about six weeks ago to plead for clemency, as I come today to plead for justice. You receive me very coldly. Oh, the royalists were very severe with the Bonapartists in those days. Monsieur, returned Villefort, I was then a royalist, because I believed the Bourbon not only the heirs to the throne, but the chosen of the nation. The miraculous return of Napoleon has conquered me. The legitimate monarch is he who is loved by his people. That's right, cried Morel. I like to hear you speak thus, and I augur well for Edmond from it. Wait a moment said Villefort, turning over the leaves of a register. I have it. A sailor, who was about to marry a young Catalan girl. I recollect now, it was very serious charge. How so? Uh, you know that when he left here, he was taken to the Palais de Justice. Well? I made my report to the authorities at Paris, and a week after he was carried off. Carried off? said Morel. What can they have done with him? Oh, he has been taken to Fenestrel, to Pignerol, or to the Sainte-Marguerite island. Some fine morning he will return to take command of your vessel. Come, when he will, it shall be kept for him. But how is it he is not already returned? It seems to me the first care of a government should be to set at liberty those who have suffered for their adherence to it. Do not be hasty, Monsieur Morel, replied Villefort. The order of the imprisonment came from high authority, and the order for his liberation must proceed from the same source. And as Napoleon has scarcely been reinstated a fortnight, the letters have not yet been forwarded. But, said Morel, is there no way of expediting all these formalities of releasing him from arrest? There has been no arrest. How? It is sometimes essential to government to cause a man's disappearance without leaving any traces, so that no written forms or documents may defeat their wishes. It might be so under the Bourbons, but at present... It has always been so, Monsieur Morel, since the reign of Louis Fourteenth. The emperor is more strict in prison discipline than even Louis himself, and the number of prisoners whose names are not on the register is incalculable. Had Morel even any suspicions, so much kindness would have dispelled them. Well, Monsieur de Villefort, 
How would you advise me to act? asked he. Petition the minister. Oh, I know what that is. The minister receives 200 petitions every day and does not read three. That is true, but he will read a petition countersigned and presented by me. And will you undertake to deliver it? With the greatest pleasure. Dante was then guilty, and now he is innocent, and it is as much my duty to free him as it was to condemn him. Villefort thus forestalled any danger of an inquiry which, however improbable it might be, if it did take place, would leave him defenceless. But how shall I address the minister? Sit down there, said Villefort, giving up his place to Morel, and write what I dictate. Will you be so good? Certainly, but lose no time. We have lost too much already. That is true. Only think what the poor fellow may even now be suffering. Villefort shuddered at the suggestion, but he had gone too far to draw back. Dante must be crushed to gratify Villefort's ambition. Villefort dictated a petition in which, from an excellent intention, no doubt, Dante's patriotic services were exaggerated, and he was made out one of the most active agents of Napoleon's return. It was evident that at the sight of this document, the minister would instantly release him. The petition finished. Villefort read it aloud. That will do, said he. Leave the rest to me. Will the petition go soon? Today. Countersigned by you? The best thing I can do will be to certify the truth of the contents of your petition. And sitting down, Villefort wrote the certificate at the bottom. What more is to be done? I will do whatever is necessary. This assurance delighted Morel, who took leave of Villefort and hastened to announce to old Dante that he would soon see his son. As for Villefort, instead of sending to Paris, he carefully preserved the petition that so fearfully compromised Dante in the hopes of an event that seemed not unlikely, that is, a second restoration. Dante remained a prisoner and heard not the noise of the fall of Louis XVIII's throne, or the still more tragic destruction of the empire. Twice during the hundred days had Morel renewed his demand, and twice had Villefort soothed him with promises. At last there was Waterloo, and Morel came no more. He had done all that was in his power, and any fresh attempt would only compromise himself uselessly. Louis XVIII remounted the throne. Villefort, to whom Marseille had become filled with remorseful memories, sought and obtained the situation of King's Procureur at Toulouse, and a fortnight afterwards he married Mademoiselle de Saint-Maron, whose father now stood higher at court than ever. And so Dante, after the Hundred Days and after Waterloo, remained in his dungeon, forgotten of earth and heaven. Donglard comprehended the full extent of the wretched fate that overwhelmed Dante, and when Napoleon returned to France, he, after the manner of mediocre minds, termed the coincidence a decree of providence. But when Napoleon returned to Paris, Donglard's heart failed him, 
and he lived in constant fear of Dante's return on a mission of vengeance. He therefore informed Monsieur Morel of his wish to quit the sea and obtained a recommendation from him to a Spanish merchant into whose service he entered at the end of March, that is, ten or twelve days after Napoleon's return. He then left for Madrid and was no more heard of. Fernand, understanding nothing except that Dante was absent, what had become of him he cared not to inquire. Only during the respite the absence of his rival afforded him, he reflected partly on the means of deceiving Mercedes as to the cause of his absence, partly on plans of emigration and abduction, as from time to time he sat sad and motionless on the summit of Cape Faro, at the spot from whence Marseille and the Catalans are visible, watching for the apparition of a young and handsome man who was for him also the messenger of vengeance. Fernand's mind was made up. He would shoot Dante and then kill himself. But Fernand was mistaken. A man of his disposition never kills himself, for he constantly hopes. During this time, the empire made its last conscription, and every man in France capable of bearing arms rushed to obey the summons of the emperor. Fernand departed with the rest, bearing with him the terrible thought that while he was away, his rival would perhaps return and marry Mercedes. Had Fernand really meant to kill himself, he would have done so when he parted from Mercedes. His devotion and the compassion he showed for her misfortunes produce the effect they always produce on noble minds. Mercedes had always had a sincere regard for Fernand, and this was now strengthened by gratitude. My brother, said she as she placed his knapsack on his shoulders, be careful of yourself, for if you are killed, I shall be alone in the world. These words carried a ray of hope into Fernand's heart. Should Dante not return, Mercedes might one day be his. Mercedes was left alone face to face with the vast plain that had never seemed so barren, and the sea that had never seemed so vast. Bathed in tears, she wandered about the Catalan village. Sometimes she stood mute and motionless as a statue, looking towards Marseille, at other times gazing on the sea and debating as to whether it were not better to cast herself into the abyss of the ocean and thus end her woes. It was not want of courage that prevented her putting this resolution into execution, but her religious feelings came to her aid and saved her. Caderousse was, like Fernand, enrolled in the army, but, being married and eight years older, he was merely sent to the frontier. Old Dante, who was only sustained by hope, lost all hope at Napoleon's downfall. Five months after he had been separated from his son, and almost at the hour of his arrest, he breathed his last in Mercedes's arms. Monsieur Morel paid the expenses of his funeral, and a few small debts the poor old man had contracted. There was more than benevolence in this action. There was courage. The South was aflame, and to assist even on his deathbed, the father of so dangerous a Bonapartist as Dante was stigmatized as a crime. End of chapter 13
Chapter 14 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Two Prisoners. A year after Louis XVIII's restoration, a visit was made by the Inspector General of Prisons. Dante, in his cell, heard the noise of preparation. Sounds that at the depth where he lay would have been inaudible to any but the ear of a prisoner who could hear the splash of the drop of water that every hour fell from the roof of his dungeon. He guessed something uncommon was passing among the living, but he had so long ceased to have any intercourse with the world that he looked upon himself as dead. The inspector visited, one after another, the cells and dungeons of several of the prisoners, whose good behaviour or stupidity recommended them to the clemency of the government. He inquired how they were fed, and if they had any request to make. The universal response was that the fare was detestable, and that they wanted to be set free. The inspector asked if they had anything else to ask for. They shook their heads. What could they desire beyond their liberty? The inspector turned smilingly to the governor. I do not know what reason a government can assign for these useless visits. When you see one prisoner, you see all. Always the same thing ill-fed and innocent. Are there any others? Yes, the dangerous and mad prisoners are in the dungeons. Let us visit them, said the inspector with an air of fatigue. We must play the farce to the end. Let us see the dungeons. Let us first send for two soldiers, said the governor. The prisoners sometimes through mere uneasiness of life, and in order to be sentenced to death, commit acts of useless violence, and you might fall a victim. Take all the needful precautions, replied the inspector. Two soldiers were accordingly sent for, and the inspector descended a stairway so foul, so humid, so dark as to be loathsome to sight, smell, and respiration. Oh, cried the inspector, who can live here? A most dangerous conspirator, a man we are ordered to keep the most strict watch over, as he is daring and resolute. He is alone? Certainly. How long has he been there? Nearly a year. Was he placed here when he first arrived? No, not until he attempted to kill the turnkey who took his food to him. To kill the turnkey? Yes, the very one who is lighting us. Is it not true, Antoine? asked the governor. True enough. He wanted to kill me, returned the turnkey. He must be mad, said the inspector. He is worse than that. He is a devil, returned the turnkey. Shall I complain of him? demanded the inspector. Oh, no, it is useless. Besides, he is almost mad now. And in another year you'll be quite so. So much the better for him. He will suffer less, said the inspector. He was, as this remark shows, a man full of philanthropy, and in every way fit for his office. You are right, sir, replied the governor, and this remark proves that you have deeply considered the subject. And now we have in a dungeon about twenty feet distant, and to which you descend by another stair, an abbé, former leader of a party in Italy, who has been here since 1811, and in 1813 he went mad, 
and the change is astonishing. He used to weep. He now laughs. He grew thin. He now grows fat. You had better see him, for his madness is amusing. I will see them both, returned the inspector. I must conscientiously perform my duty. This was the inspector's first visit. He wished to display his authority. Uh, let us visit this one first, added he. By all means, replied the governor, and he signed to the turnkey to open the door. At the sound of the key turning in the lock and the creaking of the hinges, Dante, who was crouched in a corner of the dungeon, whence he could see the ray of light that came through a narrow iron grating above, raised his head. Seeing a stranger, escorted by two turnkeys holding torches, and accompanied by two soldiers, and to whom the governor spoke bareheaded, Dante, who guessed the truth, and that the moment to address himself to the superior authorities was come, sprang forward with clasped hands. The soldiers interposed their bayonets, for they thought that he was about to attack the inspector, and the latter recoiled two or three steps. Dante saw that he was looked upon as dangerous. Then, infusing all the humility he possessed into his eyes and voice, he addressed the inspector and sought to inspire him with pity. The inspector listened attentively, then turning to the governor, observed, "'He will become religious. He is already more gentle. He is afraid.' and retreated before the bayonets. Madmen are not afraid of anything. I made some curious observations on this at Charenton. Then turning to the prisoner, What is it you want? said he. I want to know what crime I have committed, to be tried, and if I am guilty, to be shot, if innocent, to be set at liberty. Are you well fed? said the inspector. I believe so. I don't know. It's of no consequence. What matters really, not only to me, but to officers of justice and the king, is that an innocent man should languish in prison, the victim of an infamous denunciation, to die here, cursing his executioners. You are very humble today, remarked the governor. You are not so always. The other day, for instance, when you tried to kill the turnkey. It is true, sir, and I beg his pardon for he has always been very good to me. But I was mad. And you are not so any longer? No. Captivity has subdued me. I have been here so long. So long? When were you arrested, then? asked the inspector. The 28th of February, 1815, at half past two in the afternoon. Today is the 30th of July, 1816. Why, it is but 17 months. Only seventeen months, replied Dante. Oh, you do not know what is seventeen months in prison. Seventeen ages, rather, especially to a man who, like me, had arrived at the summit of his ambition. To a man who, like me, was on the point of marrying a woman he adored, who saw an honourable career open up before him, and who loses all in an instant, who sees his prospects destroyed, and is ignorant of the fate of his affianced wife and whether his aged father be still living. Seventeen months, captivity to a sailor accustomed to the boundless ocean, is a worse punishment than human crime can ever merit. Have pity on me, then, and ask for me not intelligence, but a trial, not pardon, but a verdict. 
A trial, sir. I ask only for a trial that surely cannot be denied to one who is accused. We shall see, said the inspector. Then turning to the governor, on my word, the poor devil touches me. You must show me the proofs against him. Certainly, but you will find terrible charges. Monsieur, continued Dante, I know it is not in your power to release me, but you can plead for me. You can have me tried, and that is all I ask. Let me know my crime and the reason why I was condemned. Uncertainty is worse than all. Go on with the lights, said the inspector. Monsieur, cried Dante, I can tell by your voice you are touched with pity. Tell me at least to hope. I cannot tell you that, replied the inspector. I can only promise to examine into your case. Oh, I am free, then I am saved. Who arrested you? Monsieur Villefort. See him and hear what he says. Monsieur Villefort is no longer at Marseille. He is now at Toulouse. I am no longer surprised at my detention, murmured Dante, since my only protector is removed. Had Monsieur Villefort any cause of personal dislike to you? None. On the contrary, he was very kind to me. I can then rely on the notes he has left concerning you. Entirely. That is well. Wait patiently, then. Dante fell on his knees and prayed earnestly. The door closed, but this time a fresh inmate was left with Dante. Hope. Will you see the register at once? asked the governor. Or proceed to the other cell? Let us visit them all, said the inspector. If I once went up those stairs, I should never have the courage to come down again. Ah, this is not like the other, and his madness is less affecting than this one's display of reason. What is his folly? He fancies he possesses an immense treasure. The first year he offered the government a million of francs for his release. The second, two. The third, three. And so on progressively. He is now in his fifth year of captivity. He will ask to speak to you in private, and offer you five million. How curious. What is his name? The Abbe Faria. Numero 27, said the inspector. It is here. Unlock the door, Antoine. The turnkey obeyed, and the inspector gazed curiously into the chamber of the mad abbe. In the centre of the cell, in a circle traced with a fragment of plaster detached from the wall, sat a man whose tattered garment scarcely covered him. He was drawing in this circle geometrical lines, and seemed as much absorbed in his problem as Archimedes was when the soldier of Marcellus slew him. He did not move at the sound of the door, and continued his calculations until the flash of the torches lighted up with an unwonted glare the sombre walls of his cell. Then, raising his head, he perceived with astonishment the number of persons present. He hastily seized the coverlet of his bed and wrapped it around him. "'What is it you want?' said the inspector. "'I, monsieur,' replied the abbé with an air of surprise, "'I want a nothing.' "'You do not understand,' continued the inspector. "'I am sent here by government to visit the prison, "'and hear the requests of the prisoners.' "'Oh, that is a different,' 
cried the abbe, and we shall understand each other. I hope. There now, whispered the governor, it is just as I told you. Monsieur, continued the prisoner, I am the abbe Faria, born at Rome. I was for twenty years a cardinal's father's secretary. I was arrested. Why, I know not. Toward the beginning of the year, 1811. Since then, I have demanded my liberty from the Italian and French government. Why from the French government? Because I was arrested at Pimbino, and I presume that, like Milano and Florence, Pilombino has become the capital of some French department. Ah, said the inspector, you have not the latest news from Italy. My information dates from the day on which I was arrested, returned the Abbe Faria, and as the emperor had created the kingdom of Rome for his infant son, I presume that he has realized the dream of Machiavelli and Cesar Borgia, which was to make Italy a united kingdom. Monsieur, returned the inspector, Providence has changed this gigantic plan you advocate so warmly. It is the only means of rendering Italy strong, happy, and independent. Very possibly. Only I am not come to discuss politics, but to inquire if you have anything to ask or to complain of. The food is the same as in other prisons. That is, very bad. The lodging is very unhelpful, but on the whole, passable for a dungeon. But it is not that which I wish to speak of but a secret I have to reveal of the greatest importance. We are coming to the point, whispered the governor. It is for that reason I am delighted to see you, continued the abbe, although you have disturbed me in a most important calculation, which, if it succeeded, would possibly change Newton's system. Could you allow me a few words in private? What did I tell you? said the governor. You knew him, returned the inspector with a smile. What you ask is impossible, monsieur, continued he, addressing Faria. But, said the abbe, I would speak to you of a larger sum, amounting to five millions. The very sum you named, whispered the inspector in his turn. However, continued Faria, seeing that the inspector was about to depart, it is not absolutely necessary for us to be alone. The governor can be present. Unfortunately, said the governor, I know beforehand what you are about to say. It concerns your treasures, does it not? Faria fixed his eyes on him with an expression that would have convinced anyone else of his sanity. Of course, said he. Of what else should I speak? Mr. Inspector continued the governor. I can tell you the story as well as he, for it has been dinned in my ears for the last four or five years. That proves, returned the abbe, that you are like those of Holy Writ, who having ears hear not, and having eyes see not. My dear sir, the government is rich and doesn't want your treasures, replied the inspector. Keep them until you are liberated. The abbe's eyes glistened. He seized the inspector's hand. Uh, but what if I am not liberated? 
cried he, and am detained here until my death. This treasure will be lost. Had not government better profit by it? I will offer six a million, and I will content myself with the rest, if they will only give me my liberty. On my word, said the inspector in a low tone, had I not been told beforehand that this man was mad, I should believe what he says. I am not mad, replied Faria, with that acuteness of hearing peculiar to prisoners. The treasure I speak of really exists, and I offer to sign an agreement with you, in which I promise to lead you to the spot where you shall dig, and if I deceive you, bring me here again. I ask no more. The governor laughed. Is the spot far from here? A hundred leagues. It is not ill-planned, said the governor. If all the prisoners took it into their heads to travel a hundred leagues, and their guardians consented to accompany them, they would have a capital chance of escaping. The scheme is well known, said the inspector, and the abbe's plan has not even the merit of originality. Then turning to Faria, I inquired if you are well fed, said he. Swear to me, replied Faria, to free me if what I tell you prove true, and I will stay here while you go to the spot. Are you well fed? repeated the inspector. Monsieur, you can run no risk, for as I told you, I will stay here, so there is no chance of me escaping. You do not reply to my question, replied the inspector impatiently. Nor you to mine, cried the abbe. You will not accept my gold. I will keep it for myself. You refuse me my liberty. God will give it to me. And the abbe, casting away his coverlet, resumed his place and continued his calculations. What is he doing there? said the inspector. Counting his treasures, replied the governor. Faria replied to this sarcasm with a glance of profound contempt. They went out. The turnkey closed the door behind them. He was wealthy once, perhaps, said the inspector. Or dreamed he was, and awoke mad. After all, said the inspector, if he had been rich, he would not have been here. So the matter ended for the Abbe Faria. He remained in his cell, and this visit only increased the belief in his insanity. Caligula or Nero, those treasure-seekers, those desirers of the impossible, would have accorded to the poor wretch, in exchange for his wealth, the liberty he so earnestly prayed for. But the kings of modern times, restrained by the limits of mere probability, have neither courage nor desire. They fear the ear that hears their orders, and the eye that scrutinises their actions. Formerly they believed themselves sprung from Jupiter and shielded by their birth, but nowadays they are not inviolable. It has always been against the policy of despotic governments to suffer the victims of their persecutions to reappear. As the Inquisition rarely allowed its victims to be seen with their limbs distorted and their flesh lacerated by torture, so madness is always concealed in its cell, from whence should it depart, it is conveyed to some gloomy hospital, where the doctor has no thought for man or mind in the mutilated being the jailer delivers to him. The very madness of the Abbe Faria, gone mad in prison, condemned him to perpetual captivity. The inspector kept his word with Dante. He examined the register, 
and found the following note concerning him. Edmond Dante, a violent Bonapartist, took an active part in the return from Elba. The greatest watchfulness and care to be exercised. This note was in a different hand from the rest, which showed that it had been added since his confinement. The inspector could not contend against this accusation. He simply wrote, Nothing to be done. This visit had infused new vigour into Dante. He had, till then, forgotten the date. But now, with a fragment of plaster, he wrote the date, 30th of July, 1816, and made a mark every day in order not to lose his reckoning again. Days and weeks passed away, then months. Dante still waited. He at first expected to be freed in a fortnight. This fortnight expired. He decided that the inspector would do nothing until his return to Paris, and that he would not reach there until his circuit was finished. He therefore fixed three months. Three months passed away, then six more. Finally, ten months and a half had gone by, and no favourable change had taken place, and Dante began to fancy the inspector's visit but a dream, an illusion of the brain. At the expiration of a year, the governor was transferred. He had obtained the charge of the fortress at Ham. He took with him several of his subordinates, and amongst them Dante's jailer. A new governor arrived. It would have been too tedious to acquire the names of the prisoners. He learned their numbers instead. This horrible place contained fifty cells. Their inhabitants were designated by the numbers of their cell, and the unhappy young man was no longer called Edmond Dante. He was now number 34. End of chapter 14